larger story that the whole Bible is talking about. So what I want to do is help you understand basically where Colossians fits in the history of salvation, in the history of the Bible. And I think if you know that, you can kind of get your mind into this book a little bit more. Um, but because we don't just want your mind in this book, we want your heart in this book. Um, the other thing that I want to do is I want to explain to you the heart behind Colossians. Um, Colossians for us is a book in the Bible, but it was originally written as a letter. And it was a letter from a pastor, actually a couple of pastors, um, to a real church who had real issues that had serious consequences um, if the dangers weren't heeded. Um, so what I want to explain to you guys is the heart behind Colossians because it's going to draw your heart in. When you understand how high uh, the stakes are in this letter, I think it's going to help you understand uh, on an emotional level um, how important it is to understand this book. And then obviously, because um, we're going to be preaching through this, we don't just need to know the story and the heart behind Colossians, but we need to actually know the message. Um, and what I'll explain when we get there is that I'm not going to quote a million verses to you and, and try and sum up the entire theology of Colossians, because we'll go through it. Um, as we go through this trip on Colossians, I'm not going to go through every scenic route now. We're just going to show you the highway the kind of main uh, thought that's going through the whole book of Colossians so that as we kind of go off and come back on and swerve off and come back on and follow multiple topics, you can know the main topic behind Colossians that'll help you understand where we are and where you're going. So I'm going to give you the story, I'm going to give you the heart, and I'm going to give you the message. And it's a lot to deal with, so let's just get right into it. Um, so the first thing I want to give you is the story behind Colossians. So the whole story of the Bible in a nutshell, in basically 30 seconds, for the whole Bible is this. The Old Testament, which is a massive chunk of the Bible, most of the Bible, is explaining to you that God is going to bring salvation to sinners through the Messiah. And through all of these different historical periods and stories, um, even though the people of God in so many instances display uh, how sinful they are and how unworthy of salvation uh, they are. God's plan of bringing this Messiah has not changed, and we see more and more details as the Bible is building a bigger and bigger theology of who this Messiah, who this Savior is going to be. That's the Old Testament. And then when you get to the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, we see who this Messiah is, who's fulfilling every promise of the Old Testament, and that is Jesus Christ. And we see the life of Jesus Christ from four true, um, yet different and unique perspectives. And it explains to us that salvation is completed. Um, the Messiah comes, Jesus Christ. He lives a perfect life. He dies a perfect death. And then he is risen again, proving that the message of salvation that he was bringing is true. And then basically from Acts and the rest of the New Testament, we have an explanation in multiple books and letters from Acts all the way to Revelation about how that changes everything. It changes the whole world, it changes the lives of people involved, and it's written in our Bibles to change your life. That's the whole Bible. And as we start this, we're kind of in that third part that I said Colossians kind of, the story behind Colossians kind of starts at that third part of where Jesus has risen again, and now we're seeing the world being transformed by the gospel. So that kind of starts at the beginning of Acts. It actually starts specifically in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, um, Jesus' disciples, his 12 disciples, the apostles, um, see Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, which proves that the gospel is 100% completed. 
And what he does is he explains in the whole book of Acts that he's going to establish the church. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, Christ gives his apostles his mission statement. And his mission statement is actually the theme of all of the book of Acts. And what he says is how the gospel is going to go out and change the whole world. And he says that in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, when he says the gospel is going to spread through the apostles' teaching, through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So let me say that again. The gospel is going to spread to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So basically, starting in Jerusalem, there's going to be like a spiritual explosion, and it's going to go out and out through the apostles' teaching and through other people accepting the gospel, and it's going to go out and spread throughout the entire world. And when we get to Acts chapter 9, the 12 apostles get a 13th apostle, and that's the apostle Paul. From Acts chapter 1 to verse 8, Peter is kind of the main apostle, but starting in chapter 9 of Acts, uh, Paul enters the scene. He actually enters the scene not as Paul, but as Saul. Um, he was the very opposite of a Christian. Many of you guys know this. Um, he was actually someone who killed Christians. He was someone who persecuted Christians. He was someone whose whole life was around the idea of crushing Christianity, which he as a Jewish leader thought uh, was total heresy. And the person, um, thank the Lord, who disagreed with him was Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 9, Jesus reveals himself uh, to Saul and tells him that he's going to make him an apostle, and he is going to have a pivotal role in the gospel spreading to the whole world. And of course, that's exactly what happens. And from Acts chapter 9 onwards, this mission is not squarely in the hands of Paul, but Paul has an important and pivotal role in the gospel spreading. Now that's Acts chapter 9 of Paul becoming an apostle. And then we skip forward about 10 chapters, and we get to Acts chapter 19. The gospel is already spread to the Jerusalem part, the Judea part, the Samaria part. And now in Acts chapter 19, we're at the gospel going to the ends of the world part. And what happens is Paul has been a pastor in a very big city in the ancient Near Eastern world called Ephesus. And Ephesus sounds a little familiar because it sounds like Ephesians, because Paul also wrote a letter to the Ephesians. It's a different book. It has a lot of similarities with Colossians, but it's a different book for a different church. Um, but Paul at this time is a pastor in Ephesus, this big city, uh, for two years. And in Acts chapter 19, it explains that the gospel is doing something very, very dramatic in Ephesus through Paul's teaching. Acts chapter 19, 20 says that the word of the Lord was continuing to increase and mightily prevail. And what he means by this is the end of the earth part of hearing the whole gospel is beginning here in Ephesus. And we know that from Acts chapter 19 because people are being visibly transformed by the gospel. It's not just people suddenly saying that they're Christians. It's people being radically transformed, totally different from what they were before. Um, and their lives are changing the whole society around them. And we don't actually just know that from Paul. We know him uh, that from his opponents. Um, the opponents of Paul in Acts chapter 19 are idol makers. Um, they're people whose whole lives are committed to uh, manufacturing and crafting idols to sell to people because it was a big business. We see that in uh, verse 27 of Acts chapter 19 where it says that all of Asia and the world worshipped the goddess Artemis. Now, Artemis basically is just a stand-in for all idols, but Artemis is specifically um, the, the false god, the goddess of the biggest temple in Ephesus. And everyone cared about worshiping her and worshiping multiple other idols. But these people, these idol manufacturers, have become Paul's opponents 
because he, in their eyes, has ruined their business. And the reason that he has ruined their business is because, verse 26, they say, Paul's opponents say, that Paul has persuaded all of Asia that gods made without hands are not gods. So in a nutshell, this is what is happening. The gospel is changing human lives, which is changing their personal habits, which is changing the economy, which is changing culture, which is changing Ephesus. And if it changes Ephesus, if that message, that transformative gospel message, if it leaves Ephesus, then it will do the same thing to all of the rest of Asia. And the confirmation that we have in Acts chapter 19.10 is that's exactly what happens. In Acts chapter 19, verse 10, it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Christianity now, as a global force, is radically changing the world. And even though it says that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, uh, that doesn't mean that they heard it through Paul. Paul didn't go to everywhere in Asia, even though he went to a lot of different places. Uh, what actually happened is that in Ephesus, because it was a big city, many people came there and they did business. Many of them came because they were worshiping the goddess Artemis in the temple. But what happened is they heard the gospel from Paul or one of uh, Paul's companions. They were transformed and then they would go to their hometown. And when they went to their hometown, they would teach more people the gospel. And as more people were transformed by the gospel, they would establish churches. And that is how the gospel is spreading, uh, spreading everywhere in Asia. And one of the people, who's very important for our study of Colossians, who heard that word was Epaphras. Epaphras. It's spelled E-P-A-P-H-A-R-A-S. And if you just missed that, it's okay. It's in Colossae, uh, the book of Colossians. Just look for his name. So Epaphras, it seems, heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, went back to his hometown in an area called Fergia, specifically in an area called the Lycus Valley, which you just need to know is a big area. And he established three churches. He established three churches in three cities. Um, and one of them is going to be particularly important for us. Um, eventually, there might be a map that goes up, and you'll kind of be able to see where Epaphras went. He went about 110 miles east from Ephesus, which was on the coast um, of Asia. And he went inland. Um, and the three uh, churches that he established in those three cities are called Laodicea, Heropolis, and then Colossae. And you can see in red where Colossae is. It's about 100 miles in there on the right side uh, in that big circle. And obviously that city Colossae is very important for us because that is the church that the book of Colossians was written to. If you were a Christian in Colossae, uh, you were called a Colossian. That's why it's called the letter of Colossians. So Epaphras may not have been the main pastor. He may have been just a very influential pastor. But whoever he was, he was a deeply loved pastor in Colossae because he was the one who first brought this message of the gospel. And they therefore loved the apostle Paul because not only is he this like superhero in the Christian faith now for the whole world, but he was the one who originally taught their pastor who then taught them. And basically, when we get to the Colossian church, um, we have a church that's now established, and then a letter is written to them from Paul about 30, 25 or so years later. So now that you know what the Colossian church is, let me just tell you a couple things about uh, the actual city of Colossae. It had a real culture in a real area, which we don't know too, too much about. But one thing we know for absolutely certain is this. Colossae was a very, very insignificant place to live. 
It was a very, very insignificant place to live. Um, the other two cities that were by Colossae, Laodicea and Heropolis, they had become very, very big cities. Colossae used to be about 400 years before Christ. Um, it used to be a very big city, but now it no longer is. It's actually so irrelevant that uh, the Romans had actually changed the main highway that used to go through Colossae, uh, now goes around Colossae and goes to the two other cities instead. Um, actually, as I was thinking about it today, I was thinking of the movie Cars, if you guys have seen that. Uh, you know how Lightning McQueen goes to that side uh, village and like no one's ever been there and it's because it used to be a really t uh, popular town and now the highway goes past it? That's basically Colossae. It's a place that used to be really important because it was on a trading route and it had a lot of famous people that were there and a lot of big political entities. Uh, no longer. It is now very insignificant. And it's even less uh, insignificant uh, a couple of years after Paul wrote this letter because uh, the valley that all of those cities was in was prone to earthquakes. And history shows that there actually was a huge earthquake that happened in this area. Uh, Heropolis and Laodicea both recovered, uh, but Colossae never did. It was basically destroyed from human records. And so even though we have a general estimate as to where Colossae is, um, we actually know almost nothing about it because its ruins have still yet to be found. All we know is a rough understanding of where it is, and we know that it used to be popular and no longer is. But, nevertheless, we still have a letter from the most famous Christian after Jesus Christ himself, who is sending a letter to this insignificant place. And because it's insignificant, you got to know that Paul didn't write it because it was a strategic place for the gospel to go. He didn't write it because he was desperate for money and he was trying to get money from every single church he could. There was one reason that Paul wrote a letter to the Colossian church, which is that he loved this church. No matter how insignificant the whole world thought this city was and this church was, Paul desperately loved the church. And that's how I want to explain to you the heart behind Colossians. Um, Paul himself actually didn't know um, these believers himself, but he did know Epaphras because he taught and was friends with Epaphras um, when he went back. And Epaphras at some point, a couple years after the foundation of the Colossae church, goes to see Paul. And unfortunately for Epaphras, we don't know all the circumstances, but not only did he find out that Paul was in Rome and arrested, uh, which we know from Colossians 4.3 and 4.18, um, but it seems that Epaphras himself was actually arrested. Uh, Philemon 23 actually tells us. Philemon is one chapter, and verse 23 says that Epaphras himself seems to actually be in prison. Um, now, neither of them were in prison in the way we might think of uh, behind bars. It seems it was more of a, um, a home jail where they actually had a little bit of freedom to go out. They were chained to a Roman guard. And so because of that, Epaphras and Paul got to talk to each other quite a bit. And of course, what's on Epaphras' heart is to give Paul an update on how the Colossian church is doing. Um, if you guys have ever heard the expression that people wear their heart on their sleeve, um, I am very much one of those people. It means that if they're going through like a good time or a bad time, whatever it is, whatever's going on inside, it's really obvious on the outside. And what we know from reading Colossians is that Epaphras is totally one of those people who wears his heart on his sleeve um, because he ends up just pouring out information about his passion and love uh, for the Colossian church. He says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, Paul says that Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you might stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And he has worked hard for you, both those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. So after being a pastor, 
um, Epaphras was not just concerned with this church because that was his job. He was not just concerned because he felt a pseudo-responsibility for them. Um, he wasn't guilt-tripped into being a pastor here. He desperately loved not only this church, but the other two churches in the big areas too. Epaphras had exhausted himself, all his energy, all his resources into building people up to pursue Jesus Christ. So this is a man who's been radically transformed and cares about other people being radically transformed by the gospel. And because of that, he is very, very anxious and worried for the church. The reason he is very anxious and worried for the church is because it seems that some kind of false doctrine was assaulting the church. We don't know uh, all the details of what that doctrine was, um, but many other people have tried to study it and determine what it was. And the shorthand everyone uses for that heresy is called the Colossian heresy, because it was a heresy that was in the Colossi church. Now, the Colossian heresy has lots of different details, and we'll explain them as we get to those parts of the letter. But the only thing you need to know right now is that there was one thing in particular that was devastating about the, uh, the Colossian heresy. The, th <clears throat> the thing that the Colossian heresy threatened was that it questioned the completeness of the Christian faith. It questioned the completeness of the Christian faith. And that's important because it didn't necessarily try to say Christianity is all bogus and now you gotta have this thing instead. It wasn't trying to replace Christianity. It was rather trying to be like a supplement. If you guys have heard the word supplement, maybe you've heard of vitamins as a supplement. Uh, what people mean by that, the reason you take vitamins or the reason you take supplements uh, is because you don't trust that your whole diet, all the stuff you normally eat, um, gives you everything that you need to be healthy. So you take a supplement. It adds something to your regular diet to make you more healthy. And that's basically what the Colossian heresy was falsely promising to the Colossian church. It was saying, you can keep Christianity, that's totally fine, but it's not a complete system. There's something missing that our thing, our philosophy, our doctrine can add to your life to either satisfy you more or to logically, philosophically complete your system so that it actually makes sense. And of course, that is so absolutely wrong because it attacks the whole veracity of not just Christianity, but of God himself. If God's religion, if Christianity itself is incomplete, then that means God is incomplete which means you can't trust him, you can't trust his sovereignty, you can't trust his providence, and that will radically destroy your faith and radically destroy everything that you can hold on to and hope in. So Epaphras isn't just concerned on some kind of career level. His heart is breaking about this heresy. And because his heart is breaking, Paul sees it and his heart is breaking because he loves this church too. He loves what God is doing by transforming the whole world in the gospel and he cares so deeply about a church that he hasn't even met, even though it's in an insignificant place. And so Paul writes a letter to them and he writes a letter that is full of encouragement. Paul was very different um, in his attitude in different churches he wrote. Some books like Galatians, he was quite frustrated and even angry because of the doctrine that people are already accepting. Uh, other books like Philippians, he's incredibly joyful. Or 1 Thessalonians, where he calls the church especially faithful. Now, we don't have a lot of details in some of those books like we do for Colossae. But what we do know is that he definitely seems to trust that these people are Christians. 
And so he writes them an introduction to encourage them. And this is the first two verses of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and 2 says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, even though that introduction by itself is very simple, um, it's still important to know because even in those few words, you have a lot of encouraging information from Paul to the Colossians. Let me just give you a couple of things. One thing that's incredibly encouraging about this introduction is that Paul talks about his authority. He explains to them that he is an apostle, he is a messenger from God with a message of truth for them. And he doesn't say that he himself made himself an apostle. He didn't say that he woke himself out of bed one day and said, I'm going to represent Christ. He said that he is an apostle by God's will, by the will of God. God himself told me to be an apostle. And that is encouraging because if Paul simply came to them and said, I've got a bunch of opinions for you, that's going to help nothing and it's going to help nobody. But if Paul is an apostle, that that means everything he tells them, they can trust 100% is from God and not from him. And that means that not only they get to be encouraged, that they get to hear directly from God exactly what God wants for them. It means we can too. A couple of thousands years later, Colossians is incredibly relevant for us because absolutely nothing has changed in God's mind. His truth is always truth. And since we have it directly from Paul, who we know is an apostle, we can still trust it now. And that is incredibly encouraging. But Paul is even more encouraging than that. He actually talks to them, secondly, as a family member. This whole introduction and a lot of the book of Colossians stresses the fact that they are family members. He calls them saints. He calls them saints. Now, saints isn't just people in uh, different churches who are on the stained glass windows or other people in the faith that you pray to. When Paul says saints, what he means is people who are set apart. It's the same word where we get holiness from, people who are set apart. He's talking to them as people who have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and Colossians 1, 13 and 14 transferred into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. These are people who live differently because God has radically changed their life. And it's not just one time that that happened. This is the consistent pattern of their life. And he encourages them in that by calling them faithful. You are continuously being Christians. This wasn't a one-time thing. When we look at your lives, we see the joy you have in Christ is something constant in your life. And therefore, he calls them brothers. He doesn't just call them brothers because he really likes them. He's not just really, really close friends to them, and he's calling them family. He actually explains at the end of verse 2 why he calls them brothers. And he calls them brothers because all of them are children of God the Father. They are not Christians because they behave well. They are not Christians because they woke themselves up one day and said, I'm going to live for Christ. They were dead in their sins, and God loved them regardless as a father took them out of darkness into light, and therefore all of them not only have God, but they have each other as well. And they get to be family members together in a community that they don't have to rouse themselves up to be good Christians, but they get to encourage each other. And Paul, from thousands of miles away, gets to encourage them that he is also their family member. So that is also incredibly encouraging. And the last thing he says is he says, by my authority as God's representative, I can give you the greatest message ever, not from me, but from God. So he says to them in verse two, God the Father himself tells you, have grace 
and peace. And you guys know the words grace and peace. And really, the only thing I'll say about that is grace and peace is a shorthand for salvation. He is talking to these people as people who are saved. And that's important for us because everything that we learn from the book of Colossians is not just coming to you because there is an assumption that every single person here is not a Christian. These are words that we as Christians have to know. We have to know. We have to be encouraged that God has saved us, but we need to know that there's room to grow. And that also will help you to assess where you are in the book of Colossians, because if for some reason you're never ever driven to grow as a result of this book, or if nothing in this book encourages you or seems relevant for you, then that's where you need to consider if you were a brother and sister with your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're part of the family member of God, and if you have salvation. But in the meantime, as we get into this book and you ask yourself that question, we don't just need to know um, the heart that you're supposed to grab onto in this book. You also need to know some of the details about the actual information of this book. Paul is going to explain something that Christians desperately need to know. This is the message of Colossians. Let me try and wrap up the whole message of Colossians as simply as I possibly can. Um, because I was thinking of the movie Cars for some reason this week, uh, I was also thinking of the song Life is a Highway. Raise your hand if you know that song. There you go. I heard some Snickers too, so some of you know. Imagine your life is actually a highway. As corny as that sounds, as awkward as it seems because I'm quoting Cars for the second time in this sermon, imagine your life is a highway. Throughout all of your life, you are going down one direction to reach one destination. That's what I mean about your life being a highway. You're going in one direction to reach one objective. And if all of us say we're Christians, then all of us are supposed to be going down the same road to the same direction. Okay? If we're Christians, we're all supposed to agree on that. Not in every single detail, but on all of the facts that make the highway, make the direction of our lives the same direction. Because it's not what we're choosing to make out of our lives, but what God has for us, the highway that he has made. And that is what the book of Colossians is going to explain. It's not just going to say, here's the highway, go down it. The book of Colossians, in explaining how your life is supposed to go in one direction, is going to explain to you who created the highway, who completed the highway, who maintained that highway, how you even get onto that highway in the first place, and how you can continue on that highway without getting off at the wrong stop. And all of that is done by Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians, in the simplest way possible, is about Jesus Christ. And the response that you might have is saying, I know who Jesus Christ is. I know a lot of these facts. Why are we studying Colossians? Why aren't we starting something different? I don't even remember what Habakkuk is about. Let's go back to Habakkuk. Um, why are we studying a book about Jesus Christ who I already know? And that is actually the exact reason why we're studying Colossians. Because Colossians is written for Christians who knew who Jesus Christ was, but because they might be tempted by false doctrine, they might not have a big enough view of Jesus Christ. What Colossians is really going to do is it is going to stare you and your soul in the face and ask you, do you actually know Jesus Christ? It is going to challenge your view of Christ. Let me give you three very quick ways that it is going to challenge your view of Christ. Number one, it is going to challenge who you think Christ is. It's going to challenge who you think Christ is. What Colossians is really going to do is, is it going to give you a proper perspective on Jesus Christ? Let me explain it this way. 
This week, I watched a YouTube video of a guy who really liked Star Wars. I don't really like Star Wars that much. I don't think it's bad. I just didn't grow up with it. I'm sorry, caveman. I'm not trying to offend you. Um, but this guy who really liked Star Wars wanted other people to understand how awesome Star Wars was. And so what he did, because he was a VFX artist, because he did CGI, is he said, I'm going to create visually um, exact replicas of how big the Star Wars ships are. So what he did is he gave a map view, a 3D map view of New York City, a city I think we would all agree is a very big city. And then he created, through CGI, all the Star Wars ships in perspective uh, to New York City. And obviously what they do is they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, you're like, whoa, okay, my view on Star Wars has changed. My perspective on Star Wars has changed. The last one he did actually was so big, it was one of the uh, Death Stars. I don't know which one exactly. Thank you. That's the one. Um, the Star Destroyer uh, can't, is so big it can't even be compared with um, New York City. He has to zoom out and he has to compare it to North America. And it's bigger than California. And when you see that, when you watch the movies, you're supposed to say, whoa, that's a lot bigger than I thought. And the whole point of that exercise is to change your perspective on how big these Star Wars ships are. And if you can see right now the one-to-one -one connection I want to make, it's pretty obvious. I'm not saying that illustration to make you care about Star Wars necessarily. I'm telling you that your perspective of Jesus Christ needs to be changed the same way. If you understand how big Jesus Christ is, you are going to understand the book of Colossians the way Paul meant you to understand the book of Colossians and the way God meant you to understand the book of Colossians. If I could wrap it up in one sentence, it would be this. Colossians' perspective on Christ is like the sun. The sun is so big that the rest of the universe doesn't stay unaffected. Everything in the galaxy by which the sun is the center revolves around Christ. That's how big he is. Everything revolves around Christ. And when you see the dramatic and beautiful language of who Jesus Christ is, it's going to challenge you, is your life actually revolving around Christ? Whether you think or you are or not, you are revolving around Christ. But the question is, do you recognize that? And one of the amazing ways you'll see that is if you recognize the second thing, what Christ has done. Colossians is going to challenge how much you understand about what Christ has done. Now, Colossians explains the gospel many, many ways, but one of the unique functions of Colossians is that it stresses that the gospel is a victory, that the gospel is a victory. That's actually what the word gospel originally meant. Uh, you probably know gospel meant good news, but what it meant by good news was news of someone coming to someone else and explaining that a battle had been won. And that is exactly what the gospel is presented as in Colossians. It is a victory that Jesus Christ has ultimately won and there are no more battles left to win. We are living in a reality in which battles and wars seem to be fought, but everything has been found victorious for the Christian because of Christ. That's how complete the gospel is. It is total and it is final. And therefore, what Colossians is not going to do is just give you random information about the gospel. Rather, it is going to challenge you if you actually believe that gospel. That's why the gospel is so different in Colossians to believers. It's not going to tell you, here's more facts about the gospel to make it more amazing. It will do that. But it's really going to look at you and say, do you actually believe this gospel? 
Do you actually think that ultimately nothing else in this world is going to complete you? Nothing else in this world is going to satisfy you? Only the gospel can ultimately do that. And that is huge for us because you guys are living in a world that is giving you gospels every single day. This world is giving you so many different things that are telling you that you can be complete if you go down this path or you can be satisfied if you follow in our direction. Let me give you just a couple of those things. There's the gospel of culture. The gospel of culture says that if you get into what is popular and current in this world, then you will be satisfied because you have your proper place in society. That's the gospel of culture. There's the gospel of self-completion. The gospel of self-completion is that there is a you somewhere deep inside of you, and if we create a society that accepts that, and you can get that out from the inside and out onto the outside, then you will be complete, because you'll never get into trouble, and everyone will accept you for who you say you are. The gospel of career will tell you that if you prepare enough now to have the best job you can have in the future, everything else will be fine because you have your place in society and everything that you need to provide for yourself and your family is ultimately set. And that is supposed to get rid of all anxiety and all disturbances in your life. There's the gospel of dating. There's the gospel of dating which explains that your whole life is one big search for one person. And as much as you might think that they're not perfect, you nonetheless, somewhere deep down inside, think if you find the right person, it will satisfy everything else in your life. That's the gospel of dating. There's the gospel of community that says, I don't think I can complete myself, but I think other people can maybe complete me for me. And if I can be a kind enough person, a merciful enough person, a gracious enough person, and enough people come around me, they can distract me enough from my own incompleteness. And they'll complete me. And then there's, I think, the one I've been thinking about the most this week, the gospel of comfortability. It says if you can create your surroundings to be safe in exactly the way you want, then you never even have to leave your environment. If you stay in that environment with everything you think you need, you won't go out searching for anything else that this uh, world might offer you. That's the gospel of comfortability. What I want to explain to you is that you can't believe the true gospel and one of those gospels, ultimately. Those gospels are so deceitful because they're taking so many things that are good and making them the ultimate good. They're making them the most important thing. It is good to be in solid relationships, but relationships won't complete you. It is good to prepare for a good job, but your job is not going to complete you. And ultimately, in the same way that Jesus Christ said that you cannot serve two masters, you cannot live your life going down two highways at the same time. You have to pick one. And the only one that you can pick in which you actually realize how good and satisfied and complete and how everything is in order isn't by going on a human-created highway, but it is accepting the real highway that was created for you and taking you out of your world onto that place, which is the true gospel. The true gospel is this, that we are sinners and God is right with us, that a holy God is right with us because Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and gave that to us and he died a perfect death in which he took our sin and his sin was punished on him. And because we are no longer guilty and we are righteous because of Christ alone, now we can be called children of God. And if your life is actually revolving around that truth, 
then everything else will change. And that's actually the third way that Colossians is going to challenge you. It's going to challenge how much you think that the basics of the gospel and the truth about who Christ is, how radically that changes your life. That's the third thing Colossians is going to change for you. Colossians doesn't explain that we, as Christians, are people who live for Christ. It doesn't explain that we live with Christ. It uses a much more radical term. Colossians says that, as Christians, we live in Christ, that we are in Christ. And what that means is that you are not a person by yourself. You are someone who has been so radically transformed that you can agree with Paul in Galatians 2.20 when he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's how interchangeable is the Christian is with Christ. Because when the Father looks at you, he sees Christ. He sees the perfect life of his Son, and he sees absolutely no sin, even though we live in sin every single day, because all of that has been punished on Christ. And therefore, that changes your life. It changes your whole perspective. You no longer see a world that is out of control in which everything is passing away and there is no hope. Instead, you see hope everywhere and you see God's hope welling up inside of you all the time, not because you can change your own mood, but because you know that everything is settled in Christ. Everything is handled with him. Everything is under his sovereign command. And no matter how many tragedies and awful things happen in your life, we can still know that everything is ultimately settled in Christ. And that will change your perspective on absolutely everything. It will change your identity. You will recognize that you are not one person anymore. You are two people. If you have ever hated being alone, Colossians is for you. Because it explains that you are no longer alone. That Jesus Christ is with you, he is for you, he is fighting battles for you, and everything is going to be settled in him. And that will change who you think you are. You are no longer a dead sinner. You are set free in Christ, and you naturally live for Christ. You don't make yourself live for Christ, but Christ works up the truth of his gospel in you that you might live for him, and that will change your whole identity. And because we've been talking about highways, the obvious thing thing it's going to change is your direction. You might think, and even reading Colossians, it seems like Paul is saying that it is possible to stray off the highway. But when you recognize that Christ is the Son, that the whole universe revolves around, and that by his power through the gospel you are brought into that orbit, the reality is that you actually can't ever leave the highway. Colossians is going to challenge us you're actually on the highway. But if you are given the assurance because of nothing more than you trust the gospel, if you have that assurance, then the reality is you can never leave the highway, ever. Because you're not trusting in your ability to be faithful, but rather you are trusting God's faithfulness to you. That is what Colossians is going to teach you. There's a verse in Colossians that's very, very encouraging in chapter 2, and it explains that Paul's direction, his message is for this effect that you would be rooted and established in the faith. That's kind of relevant for us because this place is called Roots. This ministry is called Roots. I didn't name it that. Someone before me did. But whoever named it that had the right intention in mind, which is that the most important thing for every single one of you guys is to be established in the faith. Not just to know the truth so well, but to believe it with all your heart 
to believe it with a faith that Jesus himself has given to you, that Jesus Christ himself has established in you, so that when you leave this place and the world starts revealing itself more and more about how much it is against Christ, you will not be afraid. And the reason is because you will be abounding in thanksgiving, like Paul explains in Colossians. And if you are abounding in thanksgiving, it means that everywhere you go and everything you do, you know more than anything else that you know with all your heart that Jesus is for you, he will not let you go, and you will be in his kingdom with him. That is what the book of Colossians is about, and that is what we're going to be getting into this year. So let's pray. Father, you are good and you do good. Thank you for being the all-sufficient Father. Thank you for the perfect redemption found only in your Son. And thank you for the transformation you have brought through your Holy Spirit. I just pray that as we spend some time in discussion and we um, share our lives, that we would encourage each other that the gospel is enough. The way that a brother has been saying this week, Lord, that has been echoing in my mind so often is that your gospel isn't just enough. It is more than enough. Uh, you are bigger. You are stronger. And you are more stable than anything this world has to offer us. So as we talk about our lives and talk about our weeks, Lord, let us encourage each other to have a proper perspective of the gospel. Let us encourage each other that a true vision of the gospel changes everything. And true belief in your son Christ brings everything together. You are so good and we worship you for your goodness and pray that you would keep us faithful. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys for your attentiveness. I'm super excited to get into this book with you. If you have any questions, um, let me know. Feel free to ask your leaders as well. Um, just one uh, quick thing, uh, just really quick, raise your hand if you're a junior high girl. I'm just trying to get numbers. One, thank you, Elliot. <laughs> one, two, three, uh, four, five, six, seven. Okay, uh, it might be, raise your hand if you're a junior high boy. One, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, 